Hello, my name is Christine Murray, and welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make places worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings more than the buildings themselves. Elaine Cresswell is a landscape architect. She's very active on LinkedIn discussing the plight of urban trees and biodiversity in our cities. And she's going to talk to me today about the death of those urban trees, the kinds of trees we choose, and why we're so often getting street trees and planting schemes wrong. Um, I'm Elaine Cresswell from Reshaped Landscape Architects based in Liverpool. Um, We specialise in sustainable and people-centred landscape design, and particularly with regard to reusing and recycling materials. Um, Thank you very much for inviting me to this uh, podcast today. I'm really excited to talk about um, our experience with trees and where it goes wrong and where it goes right. Elaine, I've been following you on LinkedIn. You always share these amazing observations from sites, things that you've seen that have been, you know, done incorrectly or, um, you know, or not uh, followed or or managed well. And one of the things that struck me was around uh, tree death. So I know you have, um, from your observations and reports on site, you have uh, some facts to share with us. So just how bad is the problem? Um, well, in, in terms of the UK, um, the, the 30% of new planted trees die in the first year, which is, which is quite horrendous. Um, the, within the 13 to 20 year time period, it, it rises to about 50%. And this is obviously just the average. So, for example, in Gloucester, um, a few years ago, they planted 13,000 trees and 95% died due to lack of watering in the first year. So these are staggering numbers. And when you when you talk about that longer period of, of mm-hmm. tree death, you know, I think, is that something that starts right on day one? Is it, you know, someone just back their car over a whole bunch of trees 13 years in or something? Or, or is this something that happens more slowly than we might believe when a tree dies 13 years later. Yeah. The, obviously, the backing of the car does happen, and that's actually largely due to incorrect placement of the tree and incorrect selection. The car shouldn't be backing over the tree. It should be designed in a place where it's not. But really, the, the majority of the issue starts really years before even the tree has um, been grown in the nursery. There's quite a lot of structural problems in terms of the way things are funded, um, and um, as well as kind of issues on uh, with specification and the changing specification that you need for climate change, and as well as um, issues um, on the way the plant is um, put in the ground and also how the soil is prepared for it. And then even after all those issues, there's massive issues with maintenance, particularly the absence of any maintenance in the first couple of years. And those issues throughout start causing more and more trouble. If they survive for those that first year, if they establish the lack of maintenance and the poor implementation, cause problems right way through the tree's life, which is why you get to fifty um, percent of um, trees dying within the thirteen to twenty year um, period. So if we start with specification, because there's a yeah. big list there of things we have to get right. But if you start with specification, I mean, I was an architectural journalist for many years. There was always um, a joke about architects hiding their buildings behind cherry blossoms. Uh, so I know I know there's a lot of uh, cherry trees, at least in the in yeah. the renderings. But, uh, you know, what are we getting wrong when it comes to choosing the trees, especially in urban areas? 
I suppose the issue with tree specification is that it, there are so many trees you could be specifying and, um, and everybody wants the trees to work really hard and do the thing that they need to be done. So, for example, with cherry blossoms, they're beautiful. I love them. They're really great seasonality. They herald the start of spring. They make us feel really, really happy and, and they're beautiful, particularly when the light shines through them. But actually, they're a really short-lived um, tree and their roots are really um, shallow. So you, quite often in verges, you'll see the, um, the, the shallow roots, which basically isn't great next to a pavement um, or a building. You, you then have to start burying off the root growth in certain directions, and that restricts the amount of um, soil volume that um, is available to the tree. And then, of course, if they survive, if they establish really, really well, then they've got a really short, short life, which isn't great for carbon sequestration because once the tree dies, then um, it, it releases all the carbon back into the environment again. So when you mention that cherry is a short-lived tree, like what is short-lived when it comes to trees? Well, in terms of the cherry trees that we were just uh, discussing, um, that's between 15 and, and 30 years, which is obviously way under the design life for, for a building. So if, for example, we've, we planted nothing but cherry trees next to development within that, that kind of very short time span, um, they would have an empty park, car park or entrance to the building and be either forced to replant um, or um, or just have, um, a, as what usually happens, a bit of tarmac um, covering that area in the pavement. So we're talking about, a, uh, you know, assuming that this urban location in front of a yeah. building is unlikely to be ideal for that tree. It might be 15 years later, there's there's nothing there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously, that depends on the, the species of cherry tree, but um, but. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a big issue where you get these really beautiful kind of architectural rending and always there's, there's a pink um, cherry blossom in there, but it's really just not long term. I think the car, uh, there yeah. is a car carbon question about that, because one of the things yeah. you've said is that when that tree yeah. dies, it releases its yeah. sequestration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So if you've kind of factored that into your net zero calculations in 15 years, you're releasing that carbon back into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. It's, I suppose it's down to this sort of issue of lack of expertise um, and um, a little bit of greenwashing because those credits have probably been um, counted in, into the building's net zero calculations. But in, in fact, it's, it is just pure greenwashing. Um, it, it's not going to um, really add to anything in, in the even short term, really. If you had a, a tree to suggest to the architects to put in front of their buildings and it wasn't a cherry blossom, what would it be? Oh, <laughs> um, mm, wasn't a cherry blossom. Again, it, it, it goes back to the whole right, right plant, right place. Um, if it was a narrow, um, a narrow street, we need to go with, if I work it back, because you always work things in terms of databases. So you, you create, when, when I'm specifying, I either get to one of the, um, a, a couple of good databases, which I know, or I do it myself in, in my head. So basically, I look at the constraints um, in terms, so basically, it's going, it's going to be in paving. Um, so we need a tree that's resilient to um, being paved over probably going to be too near, planted very near to a building. So we've got 
um, window washing and we've got scaffolding for maintenance to to consider and also light and into the building we need to um, think about biodiversity um, value because every, you, you can't you can't ignore that now everything has got to work really hard um, we've got to talk about leaf drop and um, berry drop on top of cars um, along streets and also kind of slipping in winter um, and we've also got to think about resilience to pests and diseases that may or may not um, be coming towards us. So the phone a landscape architect. Sorry. Right? So ask a landscape. <laughs> yeah, no, my my my, my, my um, <laughs> that is mostly my um, advice. Um, and we can all laugh and go, oh, you're just you're just after work. But you know, it's just it, you know, if you're spending all these resources planting the tree, get the right one. So if I was going to choose one, but it's completely overused. Oh, yeah, it needs to be salt tolerant as well, because we throw salt all over the, the earth when it gets icy. Um, so the, the one that gets used, there's um, uh, Pyrus Chanticleer, which is very upright. It's very robust, very good next to roads. Um, so, so that's a pair. So it's a relative of the cherries. But it's not so attractive, but its canopy does the right thing um, and it kind of fulfills it. But it is not so attractive as a cherry tree. So, you know, it's, it just depends how harsh the environment is because it's better to have a tree there than no tree or a dead tree or a dying tree. Um, you know, can, a surviving healthy tree is so much better. Um, and it's better to uh, sacrifice a bit of blossom and put it in a put, put the cherry tree in a park around the corner um, rather than in front of the building where it's not suitable. One of the things you said that um, really struck me was about how, you know, a tree can be dying for 10, 15 years. It can just die, you know, really, really slowly. And uh, it's something that uh, I've, I've been thinking a lot when I'm staring at even very, very old trees, you know, yeah. and very big established trees and thinking, are you just slowly dying? Yeah. So the the, the, the key, the, I sent you a couple of pictures of trees that I was watching um, for how long they took to die. Uh, mostly because I, I knew that, that they were going to die probably when they were planted. They weren't my projects. I just saw them being planted. And what you look you you look for in terms if there's no other signs, you know, well you look for the species, for example, just to see whether it's suitable for the location. So there's a bit of techie stuff there. But in terms of kind of anybody looking to see the tree stress, have a look at the top of the crown. If there's bare branches, you know, right at the top um, and at the ends in the middle of summer, then there's no reason for them to be bare branches. And as you see the tree dying over multiple seasons, you'll see less and less um, leaves coming back after spring. And they'll come back later and later because the tree is just concentrating on hanging on um, and um, not producing new leaves. The other thing you'll see on some species, it'll start trying to reproduce and it'll shoot from the base. Um, suddenly, you know, it'll just kind of yell out and go, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. Um, and it'll start doing all kinds of growth issues. There's other issues such as, you know, you can see the tree stake um, cutting into the bark or you can see the squirrel damage on the bark. So there's lots of visual things as well, which are present all year round. Just depends why it's dying. 
But that idea that it, they die from the top down, so looking at that top of the crown is a good Yeah, thing. yeah. So if a bare, bare branch is in the middle of summer, for example, on Edge Lane in Liverpool, there's um, a lovely statuesque tree, um, very suitable for rose and in its location. Um, but the, I know that from doing a project nearby that the soil is really thin, and um, there, there's not really enough of it, and it's very contaminated. My site had a pH of 11, which is uh, caustic soda. Um, so so I, the reason I started looking at these trees, I started seeing the tops um, kind of, oh, they were planted in 2008, and gradually each year, the tops get barer and barer and barer. So they, they've been in since 2008. I mean, they, they're lovely, they're statuesque, they're massive, but gradually some of the trees are being chopped down for one reason or another, and their um, their canopies are suffering. Can can you save a tree like that? A big old tree? Um, it's not so so old. So it, really, for two thousand eight, probably not because it's a structural soil issue. You might be able to. What, what I do on um, construction sites, what you do when um, the um, a, tr a tree either looks stressed or. Um, or there's possibly housing a little bit or footings too ne too near the tree. They reduce the size of the tree canopy so it stops l losing water. Um, it doesn't lose water as fast, so that means it doesn't need so much resources in order to grow and survive. So there are various things that you can do, but ultimately, if there's a structural issue like the soil, for example, you know you, you can't really do anything in the really long term. That's why it's so important to get things right on site. The very first time. Yeah. <laughs> so what other trees would you say would fall into that category of a, a short-lived tree that we are planting too much of? Yeah, I think definitely the birch tree. Um, Harry Watkins has get, done some research, and I think 10% of all new trees planted in planning applications are, um, are, are birches. It's obviously a beautiful tree, it's native, supports our native wildlife, but um, it only really grows, it grows for 70 years. So in, in terms of the kind of climate objectives, um, it's not really, kind of, it's going to give us short-term growth, but actually not, not give us a long-term strategy. Um, the other issue with it is that it's very vulnerable to, um, to drought. If you look at it in its native settings, it's always going to be found nearer to streams um, and kind of wettish ground. So, so basically in the, in the summer we just had, I saw nothing but um, dead birch trees, semi-mature and mature dead birch trees. So we need to stop, stop specifying it that, that amount and look at a more robust mixed tree planting strategy, including all the beautiful and the native trees that we have, but they can't be the only ones. We can't be specifying 10% of all schemes. So what happens um, when you're talking about climate resilience? Is yeah. the number one issue that you're dealing with drought, or is it also too much water, too much heat? What are the parameters or the concerns of landscape architects when it comes to specifying correctly for climate change? A lot around water and, and, and drought um, is also the, the issue around disease resistance and the fact that our climate is becoming more suitable for to some very scary pests and diseases that exist in other areas of the world. I mean, if you look at the devastation that ash dieback has caused, they reckon that 80% of our native ash 
populations, our existing ones, um, will die. Or there are some, although there are some glimmers of hope. But for example, um, the Asian longhorn beetle, um, which is, or and the oak processionary moth that we've got in this country um, now, and at the moment it's quarantined and there's movement restrictions. Um, if, if our climate and when our climate kind of gets more suitable for them, the escalation in um, the, their extent and their invasion could really be quite significant. And the importance of the Asian longhorn beetle is it's not species specific. Um, so it really could devastate a considerable portion of our, our tree stock. So it burrows or eats or does yeah. something to the trees and it actually will it, it'll kill tree. them. It'll kill them. So, and, and as you know, with ash dieback, obviously that's species specific. It, it covers many species of, of the ash tree, um, but um, at least it, it, it sticks to that particular um, tree species. So, you know, we, we can't specify ash anymore that is not available commercially to the plants since um, it, it invaded Britain. Um, but, for example, with the Asian longhorn beetle, we will lose our, our, our tree, current tree stocks. I can't remember the percentage, maybe 80 or something like that. It's really high. And then what do we plant back? So pests and diseases is, is really a key one for um, climate change. So when you're talking about this importance of a mixed planting or mixed specification, what does that look like um, in terms of, you know, the, what you're choosing and why does that um, create a more resilient strategy? Well, I think um, it creates a resilient strategy because then there's diversity in, in, in the populations. One tree will survive one disease outbreak when there's another one um, won't. One tree will um, kind of sequester carbon really quickly, whereas the other one will um, sequester slowly, but actually live longer. So it locks up the carbon for, for longer. And also it maximizes biodiversity. And obviously we've got the biodiversity um, collapse and crisis happening at the same time as climate change. And sometimes people separate the two, but actually they're into the, the answers to both of them are together, uh, can be solved together. And we shouldn't really prioritize climate change over biodiversity loss. We need to do the, 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 the two together. So but by planting and mixed planting, you've covered all your bases. You're going to lose some, but actually you haven't put all your eggs in one basket. And you've also um, helped um, biodiversity as well. I, I often you know, try to remind people that biodiversity is about the health of humans as well. I mean, we are, you know, biodiverse in terms of our microbiome, but also we're part of that biodiversity. We're yeah. part of that web. So if, if other things are not doing well, it's safe to say the humans in the area are probably not yeah. doing as well. But I know that uh, that the other thing that you mentioned was soil. And I know you, you posted about kind of going to these sites to check on the works that are taking place there um, and kind of check on soil quality. So what are you finding and what are you being called in to, to consult or rectify? And what what are we getting wrong when it comes to soil? Right. OK. So I'm just going to read you some more stats from one of my um, reports and the uh, kind of uh, analysis. Um, so, for example, um, trees along kind of the, the, the green spine, we got um, 16 out of 29 were alive. This is two years after planting, and seven of those 
um, 29 uh, of those 16 were um, uh, were thriving. So you can imagine, you know, there's something kind of really wrong kind of happening there. Um, also, the birch were put in kind of undersized and not to specification, and they'd all shown no growth um, at all. Even the ones which I said were thriving, they hadn't actually put on any kind of kind of girth. So, so they were also the incorrect um, species and in the wrong places. Um, so not not as the drawing and as, as the planning permission. So when so I this is, down, a, this is a real project, you're being called into check. Yeah, going to check on. And yeah. and of those twenty nine, they were not the right species. They're they're mostly not they're mo they're not growing and mostly not thriving. Just two years later. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so then I have to uh, look look at what what all the factors you know that which might have caused this lack of lack of growth and um, the non non thriving and and death in many many cases. So in general, kind of within that kind of time span and later on, it's usually due, due to the soil. The first indicator I see is that the, um, they're planted too high. Um, and generally the reason for that um, is that the contractor can't put the root ball of the tree into the ground because it's so compacted. It's generally full of concrete or they, um, there's um, the type one gravel, which um, all the scaffolding is um, put on. So basically um, the houses are built and they don't remove the um, uh, kind of all, all the structural material and the soil goes straight after that. And then the poor landscape contractor has to try and put this, this tree into the ground and really can't do it with, without a pick pickaxe in some cases. Um, but they they generally they the ones which win that type of job the contracts they've underpriced and they've limited their time. And they're told just to get on with it. Um, so either they walk off site and the or they just put the tree in. However, um, so that's in general that's the first sign. Um, so after that, I'll, I'll get my spade out and dig around the ground. And in general, there's no soil in there in there at all. Um, in this kind, of, and there wasn't in, in this site. It's basically the turf is laid sometimes laid straight over the um, the, the construction material, um, or there is a small amount of soil, but that soil is full of. It isn't the definition of topsoil. If you look in the BS, for example, there's glass, there's construction waste, there's rags. Um, sometimes it's really compacted. Um, so the water, when it when it rains, it can't drain away. So the, the poor old tree, it, even if it's been planted at the right level, is actually just sit there in a puddle of water. Um, and obviously, verge trees aren't specified to be um, adapted to that kind of conditions. And then they say, then all the, um, sometimes you see if there's soil there and it's got compacted, you, you see um, foul smelling blue soil um, underneath, uh, underneath there, which basically lost all its oxygen. So the, the tree roots, which were meant to take in oxygen, um, and, and that's how they use, used to grow, um, they, they just sit there in an anoxic environment, like somebody's put a pillow over your face. Um, so, so those are some of the, the the issues that I find. On top of that, lack of watering. There's probably probably only half of the time people they've used irrigation pipes. When you talk to the site managers, oh, that's somebody else's 
job. I oh, I thought they were doing it. Um, in general, it's just not done even through the, the, the summer heat waves. Sometimes they're planted too late um, as well. So um, trees don't really like being planted too late in the season because they get drought st stressed. And then once they provide all of that, for example, there might be a staking issue where the stake is too tight. Um, and then as the tree growth um, increases, um, then actually the, the, the tree ties start um, digging into the, the bark and that makes the trees very vulnerable to disease. Um, which is why I walk around in general with um, a little pen knife. And whenever I see, um, a, you know, a too tight tree tie, I, I, I release it. I set it free. So it sounds like we're torturing these trees in so many <laughs> ways. So I'm not surprised they're not growing. What, what do you think? Um, you think this comes from that kind of uh, stress on on time and that time pressure, that fee pressure, and then also perhaps... Just do you think there's a lack of knowledge about what will happen or, you know, is this is this willful tree murder or is a lot of this just kind of a hurried approach and you kind of think might live, might not live and they move on? And how much are people at the top aware of what's going mm -hmm. on? Because trees are not I don't know, it's not cheap stuff to, to do a good landscape scheme. Well, you know, people are more expensive than trees. So if it requires a, a person to do something, then actually spending, for example, these trees would have been about 114 you know, pounds to get from the nursery that, with the size of them. So if you've got to think about somebody watering them every week throughout the summer, actually the cost of the labour is far in advance of the cost of um, of replacing the tree and for example if you've got a, a little stick they're only been 90 pence for example so the cost of watering that in a drought is really far in excess of the cost of um, replacing it several years later so there's some really structural things that are wrong um, right away at the level of funding and the way that um, funding is given because funding is for implementation and um, not for maintenance and that's kind of all the EU-funded projects are like that, um, and um, practically every funding is like that. It's, it's not for; um, it's just for putting trees in the ground and not making sure they're established. I really think that's the thing, the massive thing that needs to change. People need to stop seeing maintenance as expenditure and and something else. It needs to come, you know, at least five years needs to come with the funding for the tree. So we need to properly price them. QSs, for example, often aren't specialised in landscape. They get the Spons landscape handbook and they see the underpricing within that particular document that they use. So the, uh, the budget aren't correct. Um, I only use two QSs for my landscape driven projects because I know they're going to price my landscape properly. And the other issue is, uh, is training and skills in this country. We've really, really got a chronic issue with even landscape contractors um, knowing what has to be done and keep up to date with climate change and all the new methodologies. So we've got that, those kind of strategic kind of high, high issues. Then we've obviously got the site issues, which basically we need leadership from the top. We need the the managers of the you know of the house builders to say this needs to change and this is how we're going to do it. We need the site level. The site level actually, when I talk to them, they make some they made a joke um, a couple of weeks ago about um, the fact that um, 
biodiversity net gain um, is going to mean that they can't put plants next to their big curbs. So they know they're doing it, but it's not within their deliverables. The, Just to explain, I mean, why is it wrong to put your tree next to your big curb? Because it's not going to have enough um, enough soil. So basically, it might be fine when the tree is really small, but the root volumes need to be massive. Obviously, if you barrier, you put a tree barrier, then you know, in, in four directions, that's the amount of soil that the tree is going to have to survive. So fine when it's small, but when it gets big, suddenly it's got no no nutrition um, to, to 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 draw on. It's used its whole little constrained pot. Um, it's the same as putting it in a planter. That's the amount of soil it, it'll have. Um, the modern way of doing things is in tree trenches so the roots can grow outwards in at least two different directions. But only the leadership from the top can sort out that um, that particular issue. They need The site managers need to have a deliverable. And also they need somebody who understands what their landscape contractor is doing. They need to have somebody who understands not to push um, for the lowest common denominator for the cheapest price isn't the right price. Two weeks ago, um, at the moment, I'm get, doing a remediation scheme where all 29 trees have died. Um, I found out what's wrong. I've re-specified it because the local authority won't stop planting because it's all dead. So I've re-specified it correctly, doing redoing, getting re-getting the trees, re-finding a contractor to put the trees in, sort of a year to two two years um, maintenance and um, redoing all the soil uh, as well. Basically, you're starting from scratch. Um, I've gone out to three different contractors, two of my own, um, who I know are very good quality, and they've been told um, very directly, this is a high quality spec, you know, they, they have to do it properly. Um, and the, the other one I was asked to use because they were on the particular developer select list, so it wasn't problematic to give them more work. The other two were going to take paperwork, so they didn't generally work. So the one that the, the um, developer used completely underpriced. He ignored my specification, even though it came from a landscape architect, and even though I'd obviously been paid to write it. Um, he just saw the client and thought, I'm going to only win this job if, if it's the lowest possible price. Um, and actually, he didn't realize that, um, he, you know, he was so used to working like that, that he didn't realize that he would be turfed off the tender list or I would have walked off the job because I'm only interested in helping people who want to get it right. Amazing. I, I, I think the one thing I wanted to talk about with you is just that, you know, we've got all of these um, schemes now that are seeking or developers who are seeking to hit net zero targets on their, on their project. And so often the tree planting is kind of factored in as in, mm -hmm. in the carbon calculations yeah. of that. Uh, and then you have this uh, counter argument, like you said, where we're replacing the tree. And I know you and I were talking about HS2, where staggering number with 89,000 trees died. And uh, HS2's uh, reply to the news um, was that it was much more cost effective to not water the trees and let them die and to just uh, plant them again, and that this was a more ethical use of resources and a more cost-effective solution. But of course, not really discussing the carbon cost of letting eighty-nine thousand, you know, trees uh, die. So, so I wonder if you could kind of take us through that sense of you know what is the cost of a tree that we see as like a small tree, but you know, a, a small tree that's maybe you know not expensive to to yeah. replace. 
what is that, you know, what is that carbon calculation um, when you are just seeing this, the scale of tree death? I suppose with, with, with high, high speed too, they're probably talking about um, putting a stick in the ground. Um, so that, that kind of cost in terms of the plant material will be about 90 pence. But there's obviously tree staking and tree guards um, on top of that, which will probably double that, double that cost. Um, so so the, the, the costs of planting um, that kind of size material are re in, in terms of numeric you know, pounds, very small. Um, for a small um, tree that you might see amongst other planting, that's probably about 114 pounds to 100, 250, depending on species. But for the, the, the street trees, you, you might go up to anything to 500 pounds um, a tree. And that doesn't include all the gubbins, all the below ground stuff, the planting it and the establishment maintenance. So, so there's like a sliding scale of what's, um, what the, the initial costs for planting are. In terms of um, the watering, watering is really expensive because you've got to um, carry on doing it. Um, and in general, it really matters where the water gets delivered, whether it's the surface, whether it's to the roots and um, different tree species require different kinds of um, watering regimes. There's a new innovation, which is just you might have seen it along the street. There's um, watering bags and you can fill, give them a whole week of watering all in one go. Those, those guys, those watering bags cost £15. Um, so and and you can see when they're empty. So rather than seeing the tree kind of get water stressed next year, you can actually see when they haven't got enough water, and you can work out how much water the the tree is taking every single time. So so there are kind of modern. There's no real like excuse for it anymore. Um, we we need to just you know start spending our our money on some watering bags and ameliorants in the soil there's because i use mycorrhizal fungi and water um, retaining pellet pellets so there's all these kind of things which you can do to mitigate the amount of um, watering and the sort of cost but it still does cost a bit because it requires a human to um to you know bring a bowser and um pour water into the tube or the or, or the watering bag but in terms of the environmental cost of yeah. getting to that stick size or that yeah. street tree size, how many years and, and what is the care that gets a tree okay. to that point? So, again, it's really, really dependent on the, um, uh, on, on, on the tree type. Um, so, for example, fast-growing species like um, poplar, for example, which isn't suitable for everywhere because it's, we, we all know it's got very vigorous roots and that's... You know, that's what it's good at, growing really quickly, really, really kind of really robustly in um, possibly very kind of waterlogged conditions. So that that kind of tree um, won't require, if it's planted in the right place for it, um, it won't require very much maintenance at all. But for example, if you've got a, a slow growing um, pine tree, um, for example, they're very stress tolerant. And the reason they're stress tolerant is that they grow really, really slowly. But it means that they need much longer. I watched um, a CPD um, video the other day. And basically, some tree, it said that, for example, a pine tree, we should be watering it for five years. But that modern research is saying pine tree is five years because it's so slow growing, it takes that long to establish. Whereas you've got something like a poplar, which is really fast, and that might be one year. So does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And also, I mean, it suggests you need to know your trees. 
yeah really really you can't put anything in the ground you know it's um it's one of the things about being a landscape architect you know we see all kinds of really well-intentioned planting projects people who want to do the right thing people who want to plant for climate change and biodiversity benefit and for their own well-being but really they they really really need to get an expert um on board who really understands which tree is suitable for the right place in order for their very very well in, intentioned efforts um to survive i i was contacted during last summer's um fire season in the drought by a community group they spent weeks planting these trees in the ground and the whole, they lost the whole lot plantation due to fire um, was if they got a, you know, just a few days from, from an expert, we would have designed it so it minimised the fire risk, it was more suitable for the drought conditions, and um, maybe done a more mixed planting, so um, it, it had greater, it delivered more on what they wanted in terms of the benefits. I was uh, going to ask you about the London Plain. I know it comes up every once in a while that these, yeah. these huge trees are um, all planted around the same time. So what are the the concerns that we have around the plain, the plain trees um, in London. Yeah. So obviously they're, they're a monoculture. They're re really good trees, and they survive really long in really hard, harsh conditions. And they're very, very suitable for the air pollution. Their, their bark just literally peels off and expels any toxins that, um, that the tree might take in. So they're fantastic trees for their location. But the problem is they're a monoculture, so they're so vulnerable to you know, kind of diseases, and also they're really, really vulnerable to all dying at the same time on mass. And there's been quite, if you Google them, um, you'll see quite a few photomontages of um, the uh, South Bank or you know, other kind of key areas in London without the, the plane trees. So it, it's really a massive issue that when I don't know if anybody's planning. To, um, planning to replace them or planning for that to happen, but it, we really need to start considering it and start um, on a kind of very considered um, replacement program. I always feel like I never see a baby plane tree. I mean, I know they're non, I think they're non, not a fertile tree. They don't actually um, see themselves. But, uh, you know, are we, can, do people still plant plane trees today? It, 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 it's a really good question. I don't think I've seen, seen them either. Um, I think we've, I suppose they're not really a very attractive tree in terms of, you know, they're blossom and, um, and I, you know, you're not going to see them kind of in your photo montage of a nice leafy, leafy street. They're also very big trees, so they're going to need, a, you know, a fair amount of um, soil. And I guess they'll probably cast quite a lot of shade, and we tend to plant trees in you know, inverted in very incorrect places. So it probably wouldn't be the one that you, you did, um, that, that you went for, went for. But I can't actually remember seeing any plain, plain trees recently. Interesting. So so what would be the, I think, what would, do? you don't know whether there's a replanting scheme, but you would urge people to try to start to think about how they're going to replace yeah, these trees. I think we can't just wait for them to either fall over or, or, or to, you know, individually or succumb to suddenly a, a disease that climate change has made them vulnerable to um, all, and, and lose them all, all at the same time. We, we really need to start plan, planning ahead. Um, 
obviously it's really difficult to establish trees under you know kind of under an existing canopy but i, I don't think we're gonna if we start seeing all the problems and don't start with planning for it or um a replacement program then we're going to suddenly be surprised one day when we've lost all of them when you um talked about the kind of shorter lived trees we talked about birch and we talked about um cherry what are your uh favorite um in that mix or what are your recommendations in that mix in terms of the longer lived uh trees that are Ooh. you know climate resilient it really depends on the place you know there's the old adage right tree right place um so it's really difficult i've got personal favorites um, but so it's really, really difficult to pick one because then somebody takes that and puts it in the wrong place, and suddenly I don't like it. Um, so I suppose at the moment, what, what I've planted on on a scheme, um, probably last week or the week week before, we're we're on a very very wind windy stretch of the Liverpool coastline. Um, wind whips across the Irish um, Sea and. This is the first bit of land it hits. So obviously I've got to worry about tree survival. Even the most resilient tree, particularly when it's young, is going to really stress on that. So in that that location I've chosen, we would, it, it is in a mixed planting, but we our budget was quite small. So I've added to the mixed planting. We've got um, the black pine which is very, very suitable for that conditions. It's really suitable for um, the character of the of, of the Liverpool and the, the Seton Post. And it's really tall. And I've used it to mark the footpath junctions. Uh, ideally, I'd love to just cover the whole of Otterpool Prom with them. It would look completely stunning because I've only got the budget for the 30, 30 of these pine trees, I've got them. So that in, in the future, when you want to know how to get from, um, you know, the, the footpath network and, and the car park and to the prom, you're going to be able to say, ha ha, pine tree. Um, yeah, I'm going to walk towards the pine tree. And rather than having, having a footpath sign, which is ultimately, you know, another piece of furniture, and I, you just walk towards tree, and that does your legibility and waymarking. And my other tree I planted um, is, and it's the first time I've had the bravery to plant it, I've only planted seven of them, is um, the disease-resistant elm tree. I've always been a bit scared whether it was really disease-resistant or not. And the reason I I got over my um, my barrier with it. Is the community found some old photographs um, of elm trees just covering this area of the um, of the Liverpool coast um, a couple of hundred years ago before it was turned into a public park. And so I just thought, you know what, we we just need to re recreate this picture the, uh, um, and bring back the species to that particular area because clearly they're really adapted to that kind of environmental stress. And also the community really felt them. You know, they want they wanted to, that, that was what they asked of me. So I'm really quite, it's my small experiment. So in that setting, those two are my favorites within a very limited, small budget. But you ask me a different setting, I'll tell you a different couple of trees. And your favorite um, mistreated urban uh, street tree, what would you? Oh, your... mistreated urban, my favorite. Um, there's a tree called liquid amber. 
um, and it, it's very, very res resilient. It goes bright um, red in, in, in autumn, and its bark is crazy. It looks like um, if you kind of take apart um, uh, the cork from a wine bottle, you know, if you kind of mess around with it for a bit too long, maybe you want to fidget with it, um, then actually that's what the bark looks like. So it's got a really great texture to it. I mean, it's very, very resilient. It's growing off in London. That's uh, amazing. So, um, and then when you're talking about your mixed planting, I mean, we've kind of talked about trees, but, you know, I know you're working quite um, hard in the advanced the biodiversity net gain coming and you've been doing some work on biodiversity. We talked about it at the Festival of Place. Uh, but what are your, uh, what are you finding in terms of um, uh, increasing biodiversity through, through kind of um, planting? Planting or trees? I guess, well, do the trees make a big difference to that as well as the plant? Okay. Oh, so absolutely. <laughs> it, it's, it's part of the whole story. And it, the, the absolute key thing is the habitat-based approach rather than the tree-based approach or, or a planting-based approach. You know, we, as you mentioned earlier, we are part of nature. We just forget about it. And, and really just planting one thing um, or one species is um, it's so limiting. I mean, with an avenue, that's obviously, it's beautiful to have an avenue and that you, you just kind of make that sacrifice, the biodiversity sacrifice. But actually, in, in general, um, the rule of thumb is about five, five minimum of five species um, in an area to make it um, sort of resilient to the challenges. Um, so what does that mean, habitat-led habitat approach or a habitat-based approach? Are you, do you then start with what you want to attract? Yeah, so so absolutely. So, for example, if you if you wanted to try, if you pick, say, I want some tr a tree a tree in that location. You're just considering the tree. You're not considering everything else that might use that tree. For example, if you want to provide resources for bumblebees, for example, or or other, other pollinators, you need to choose a tree which has resources for that creature. So quite a lot of kind of tree flowers aren't good for um, for pollinators. Um, you have to choose the ones which they like to use. Bumblebees live in tree canopies um, quite often. And for example, with moths, um, that they quite they enjoy um, the, the nighttime use of a kind of tree plantation. But they'll also they won't just need their food. They need their uh, somewhere to, to um, hibernate. They need somewhere to hide from predators. Um, they need somewhere to get their water resources. For example, with um, in insects, they can't get their um, water from what they eat. They've got to actually find a water source, and it's got not probably deep enough so that they drown. Then you've got to think, okay, we've got the pollinators there. Um, what is going to benefit from um, the um, pollinators being there? The birds are going to um, sort of benefit, for, come, come along after you get the pollinators because they're going to um, they, they're going to tuck in and have get the food but what else do the birds need the birds need nesting material they need um a, a, a place to nest um they they probably you know, there's all kinds kinds of things so then what eats the eats the birds um is it the foxes once you've got the birds hopping around on the ground eating the bugs and uh, everything what's going to come along and eat the birds and probably the fox um and how wonderful to kind of see a fox in our urban environment and see you know, a mammal, you know, in, in our urban environment. So, and then, for example, the fox 
often eats all of it, but sometimes it stores the its prey in an area of scrub or plant somewhere that dogs aren't going to disturb it or and it feels safe. Um, so then the uh, detritivores and everything that's de- going to de- decompose and turn all those nutrients from uh, the, the dead bird back into the ground so that the trees and the plants can grow. So this is what I mean by a habitat-based approach. Um, a tree is very, very hardworking, but it's uh, we really, really, if we're going to protect biodiversity and reverse um, the, the calamity that we've caused, we really need to have this wider habitat-based approach. I think it's just a, a wonderful way of thinking about the planting because I think we so often think of of these landscapes as being for our enjoyment or amusement or appeal. Uh, and and of course, actually, the bird song and seeing the yeah. fox and all of those things are also part of that appeal. And um, so I, I really um, want to thank you for bringing that, uh, shining a light on that perspective for me and yeah. for talking to me about all these huge issues today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed myself. Thanks for asking great questions. Thanks for listening to The Developer Podcast, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. If you like what we do, please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And you can also support us on Patreon or as an organization member. Thanks to our organization members, Argent Related Argent, BDP, Broad Oak, Civic Engineers, Commonplace, David Chipperfield Architects, EPR, Fathom Architects, Homes England, Hawkins Brown, Stolen Studio, HDA Design, Landsec, LDA Design, Lendlease, Located, LUC, Make, Muse Developments, Poplar Haka, London Borough of Brent, Urban and Civic, Quintain, Solver Studio, Stride to Brown, Sustrans, Tibbolds, Vestra, Whitam Cox, Alfred Hall, Monaghan Morris, Borough Happold, and RHP.